Elana Wayne. Wayne, did I pronounce it correctly? Yes, Wayne. Sounds like a superhero name. <laughs> <laughs> yes, uh, Batman. <laughs> exactly. Yes, uh, well, welcome to the pod. Thanks for joining us today. Um, yeah. We're super excited to have you. Uh, you've got some awesome experiences. Um, I saw you LinkedIn. Uh, I looked a little bit into your work. Uh, you've done, you know, really, really cool stuff. Um, I would say in a relatively short career, uh, which is amazing. And so um, we'd we'll love to hear, you know, a good way to start for us is your your origin story. You know, where do you come from? Um, how do you get started in, in creative directing and sort of being a, a creative lead for some of these amazing brands? Um, what got you there? Yeah, for sure. Um, to go way back, not too far back, but I'm from Atlanta, Georgia, originally. Um, mm -hmm. I went to school at University of Texas where I studied fashion design. Um, I would say in high school, I mean, when I ever since I was young, I was the artist of my class, always very creative. I was a perfectionist. <laughs> I um, was very involved in the art side, but I always had a business mind too. Like as soon as I started driving, I had three jobs um, and was never home. So it was, I think, that mix for me between the super creative mindset and loving the artistic realm and also being super motivated business-wise and on the entrepreneurship um, side. And so when it came time to pick a major in a school, um, I actually in high school went to FIT for a summer in New York to see, you know, I was like, I like fashion. I think that could be a good mix. Um, there's the creative sense there with design. It's their businesses. Um, so I went to FIT for a few weeks. I loved it. And I did a fashion design course. Mm -hmm. So I thought Texas was a good pick with an amazing business school. And then also the ability to major in fashion design, uh, textiles and apparel, it was called. Um, so I did that fashion all throughout college. And then I graduated in 2020. So right in the middle of the pandemic and, you know, fashion. Bad timing. Yeah. <laughs> Fashion was, uh, you know, no one was hiring. <laughs> so I um, pivoted a bit. And I think for the best, I had amazing internships in fashion throughout college, loved it. But I think, you know, at the time I was graduating, I was concerned. I wanted to do something creative. And for my internships, I really saw fashion design can be a desk job <laughs> if you're at a bigger company, like you're catting all day, you're behind a computer. And I was like, I want to be in business. I want to be creative. I don't want a desk job. I don't want to be sitting behind a computer all day. So I didn't really know how that was going to play out. Um, and then, yeah, I graduated and I had to pivot. So I was like, what can I do? And everyone at the time really just needed to stand out online. Um, and so I went back to, you know, what I've been good at since I started being creative and loving art. And that was just, I knew what looked good. So mm -hmm. I came in and was helping brands that just came to me organically through friends, through family. And they were like, how do I take what I have? How do I take my product and either make it shine on social? How do I, you know, make a website that stands out? People are coming to my website now that it's COVID and not visiting us in store. And everyone was trying to pivot. And I just became kind of like a resource and started consulting. Um, I had no idea what I was doing. <laughs> I graduated. I mean, <laughs> all the skills. I had never actually designed an email before. I'd never designed a website, all things that I, when I came to these clients, I was like, of course I can do it. 
you know, I just figured it I out. Love it. Fake it till you make it. Yeah, exactly. I I knew inherently I know what looks good. Um, I think if you're determined, you can figure out any tool um, in this day and age. So I was like, if I need to reteach myself, luckily I had that base of Adobe um, because of fashion design, but everything else, Figma, Canva, any, any other tool I needed, um, I learned and I, yeah, that was the kind of the start of my career as I would say at that time, I was just saying I was a freelance uh, designer, but Really, it was creative direction. I was coming in and helping these brands pivot and figure out what do we want to look like to consumers online. How do you, you know, it seems like at some point you kind of realized there was an intersection between business and creative um, and you wanted to get sort of training on both. Um, how do you come to this realization and, and how do you think has it has been important as you've become a creative director for you know, consumer brands? Like how important is the impact of business and and whatever you you go forward with in terms of design? Like, is it highly influenced or um, is it sort of the creative influence in the business? Yeah, I mean, it's a balance. I think I'll forever be trying to to strike. I mean, to go back, um, my whole life it was something I kind of hated as a quality having both. Um, you know, you're. Mm -hmm. You're in high school and I was in an art magnet and all my friends were in the math and science magnet. And I was like, I'm getting good grades. You know, I'm smart, but that wasn't the perception. It was like the smart kids are math and science and they'll probably go on to be in business or finance or do whatever. And the creative kids, like who, who knows what's going to happen with them, but they're creative. So that's cool. And then um, I went to Texas and I was in an ultra creative major and I felt like I just could not hit the level of creativity that these kids were doing. You know, they were just so outside of the box. And I was like, definitely held back in a sense because I think my mind always worked with, is this functional? Like, can this be applicable to a business one day? And, you know, that, that drew a bit of a line for me when we went to like design our collections. Um, I was like, could this be manufactured? Like, is it practical or is it one of one? And I didn't like that quality about myself because when I saw my, you know, collection uh, against people that were just like, don't have that limit on themselves, they were so creative and built such beautiful things. But now I think it's, you know, one of my best and my strongest qualities because I can go into a business and adapt and really listen to the metric side, the KPI and reporting side and say, like, I can get on that level with um, investors or people that care, you know, want to see if we're driving revenue and understand is my creative limit um, like driving mm -hmm. sales, you know, am I ensuring that I'm not crossing a line that will um, not like a consumer won't respond to. And so yeah. now it's something that I love about myself and my skill that I have both. And I have that limit in the back of my mind when it comes to creativity of like, is this practical? Um, and that's great. I think that's what got me, you know, so quickly adapted to working in venture capital, um, working with a board, reporting to a board. Um, a lot of creatives, you know, aren't used to or need to report um, and don't need, you know, you're not taught in creative majors or in school or even some creative careers of um, needing to close that process of like, OK, I came up with this great idea, but then what will it drive? Um, is it driving sales? Is it driving awareness? Um, so I think that was all pretty inherent to me, which I was, I was very 
lucky in the end. <laughs> it's interesting. Sometimes we work with uh, creative directors and, and one of the things that we see is that it's super, it's like a super creative approach to everything, right? And and there's like, if you're in the middle of a production, you have the creative director, you have the producer, the producer is almost the shepherd of like the business, right? And like, yeah. everything has to be on time. Everything has to be you know, uh, according to budget. And like, we got to manage expectations. And like, um, and then the creative director is like, let's just go, let's go crazy. Let's just like do the, you know, let's create art. Mm -hmm. um, and so having to, you know, having someone that can kind of balance both, I think it's incredibly effective, especially today where, you know, in, we see, I mean, we work with hundreds of consumer brands and one of the things we see is like the creative is really in service of the customer, right? So like at the end of the day, like your brand will mold into who your customer is and what your customer is looking for. Um, and so, you know, at the end of the day, like you have this creative teams working with this marketing teams and the marketing teams are very performance driven. And so there's this back and forth between like what the values and what the brand stands for and then what the customer responds to. Um, and we see very frequently a big disconnect between those two. Um, and, you know, I think having somebody that can liaison between between those two worlds, it's incredibly powerful. Um, one, of the, one of the questions I wanted to ask you, and this is from your experience prior to, you know, your registry, but I think it's Umanus, Umana Venture Studio. Right, where you guys work with uh, with celebs, what is it like to work with some of the celebrities? I mean, because they're talk about free souls, right? Like an unbounded soul. So, like, what is it like to manage that from a creative yeah. standpoint? For sure. Um, so yeah, I kind of fell into my job at TVH. Um, at the just a little backstory, like at the time I was freelancing, and I met the head of the venture, Bob Manuzzi. Um, an amazing, powerful woman. And she is like the epitome of being able to harness these free souls. That's what she loves to do. Um, and at the time she was like, I don't really have, you know, anything or any creative needs for the venture studio, but we're launching this brand. And I, I want you to kind of like pioneer what that brand will look like and be the marketing mind behind it and, you know, help with the creative. And the brand was Noah Schnapp's now Nutella brand, TBH. Um, mm -hmm. Had so many different names before, different colors. It's crazy to see how quickly something evolves into a product. Um, but I was really, really lucky to be um, a part of that process, like pre-inception. Um, and not only because it's just an amazing experience as a whole to see a brand come to life, but also working with Noah. I got to see him evolve. He's extremely young, smart, driven. Um, he just started college at Penn. Um, so when we started working together, he was still in high school. So talk about yeah. like working with the free soul, let alone, you know, a very, very young entrepreneur, um, new entrepreneur, uh, actor, obviously in Stranger Things. Um, and he himself is just, was at the time that we were working together in a space of who am I? figuring it out. What do I want to do? What am I passionate about? So it was really, really one inspiring. I mean, I think a lot of people that walk away from working with celebrities are probably, you know, they're just in a different space than you are. You're there to build their business. You're there to consult with them. You're there to give them advice and really like take their dream and make it a reality. And I think everybody has a different experience. Um, 
but my experience with Noah was he was the source of inspiration. And then it was our job to say, okay, like, how do we make this happen? Um, he was the inspiration behind the product itself. His favorite food prior was Nutella. And um, when the venture studio told him what was in Nutella and how awful it is for the planet and um, our bodies, he was like, okay, well, that, you know, that's not going to work for my generation moving forward. We're like, we're conscious consumers. Let's get something that tastes as good and, you know, make it better. So he came up with the product. Um, and then, you know, we take it from step A to step B, but that's like the grand scheme of things as far as the, you know, the product he's the inspiration, but that goes to the day to day, like a TikTok concept or a meme. Sometimes they're, he's the inspiration for everything. And then it's on the team to kind of execute and run with it. So um, I would say the difference is if it's your own product, you know, you're the inspiration, you're the source of this is what I want to do and I'm going to do it. And working with the celebrity, it's just, it's their dream. You got to constantly check in or else you end up with something that's not aligned, um, which I think is a big issue. A lot of celebrity driven brands are running into these days, as you know, they're running in two different directions. They're like, we can just use the celebrity's face um, and make our dream come true and use them for the audience, the built in audience, essentially. Um, but the audience feels that if it's not the celebrity's dream, if it's not their story, if it's not their voice, you know, I think that um, comes to the surface eventually. So it's that's interesting. I, uh, you can see a lot of a lot of um, you know. I, I'm very curious about the studio models in general. I love to ask you more questions about that yeah. because you know it's not it's not an incubator in the traditional sense. It's not a venture fund. It's sort of this hybrid between the two of them, right. and especially venture studios that work with celebrities. I mean, you, we've seen a handful of cases where the brands have become enormous. Uh, you know, Fenty is one of our clients. Obviously, it's, it's huge, and we have a number of other celebrities and venture studios like Atomic, that are, you know, Ham Harris that have made it work at a really large scale. Um, but then there's like a huge number of studios that have done okay, but haven't quite, you know, broken through that glass ceiling. Like, what do you think is preventing preventing them from really blowing up? Um, you mentioned. Uh, some of it might be alignment between these celebrities and their fans and what they're actually launching. Are there any other mechanics that you think um, don't, are not well-oiled when people launch the studios that you've observed? Yeah, I think um, not only alignment between the celebrity and the team on the product, the dream and the voice, but also alignment on what they see for the company, like discussing What's the end goal here? Is it to get bought? You know, is it for the celebrity or celebrity like Noah, um, who's young, like how is this gonna transition with you? Um, and making sure that's decided early on, I think is important. Obviously things evolve and change, but sometimes those conversations don't happen up front, And that's when you see a lot of like schism between a celebrity and their studio. Um, I think there's also the lack of discussion around how are we going to build this and what's our team going to look like in VC, it's super common to want to start and stay with a very lean team until acquisition. And I think sometimes that's hard when you have a celebrity founder, a celebrity brand that's trying to make a huge company that's, you know, taking over a concept or another brand. Um, sometimes you need more people and you need to say that's okay. Or, okay, we're going in a different direction. Um, yeah, so going, I mean, 
it's such so many people are doing it that I think a lot of people just want to follow a successful path that's already happened and say, we're going to do what Fenty did, or, you know, we're going to do what Kylie Jenner is doing. You can't like, you can't replicate any celebrity business. It's just impossible. Everyone's audience is different. Everyone converts differently. Um, people have different passions. They have different, some people are great on social. Some celebrities don't want to get on and talk. Um, so you have to do your own thing. But I think where it breaks down and where it fails is a lack of communication um, between the teams and the celebrities. Yeah, that's, I've, I've observed a lot of that. And, you know, I wonder, like, many times you have these, even these celebrities, they have large followings. But I wonder what is the, um, you know, what is the, the common thematic between those fans? Like, is there... Like, are they, are, are they really of one kind of person? You know, are they like one type of demo or are they incredibly spread? And so when they launch a product, uh, it's not, you know, it's one part is what is their objective? Like, what do they want out of this brand? And right. the other thing is like, what's their audience actually want? Like, what are they That's looking definitely. for? Um, how have you seen the, the, the idea behind, you know, the saturation of the market? I mean, it's easier than ever to launch. We see like thousands of indie beauty brands being launched every month like it's it's quite insane at the pace that these brands are launching because it's easier than ever to to launch a brand right you have tools you have co-packers you have formulators you have uh you know shopify to launch your store right away you can run a bunch of ads and you know, start getting some traction what we see the the challenges um this middle middle of the growth curve, like this big extinction event where everybody launches their brands, they're solo founders, they're self-sponsored, so self-funded. And then it comes to the, to, to the point of having to scale up, having to maybe raise capital to invest in marketing, to invest in like a large production run. And there's a massive extinction event at that point. And then a very small percentage of them actually get past that, whether it's through financing or you know raising venture money, uh, joining a studio, joining an incubator, and then they kind of get scaled velocity. But there's this big, big extension event that we see there in that, I call it the trough of sorrow, where like the, the founder gets, you know, sort of demotivated. They come into the realization that it's actually really hard to build a business. Uh, it's not just about building the first thousand units and like getting their friends and family to buy them. Um, have you seen any strategies uh, from all the brands you've you've seen and worked with that, um, have managed to help them sort of surpass that middle ground into the, you know, the stardom, if you will, like any commonalities or any common traits that the, the, the best brands have. Yeah. I mean, from my experience, I, TBH and Raw Juicer are completely opposite ends of the spectrum. TBH was, um, like you said, the hybrid of venture incubated. Um, you know, we had a VC attached to, RPC studio. And so in theory with, you know, that concept fundraising when it comes time should be very, very easy. Um, the challenges with that are right out the gate. You know, you have investors, you have opinions, you have, you know, you need to be very meticulous and careful, like I said, about communication and making sure everyone's aligned. But when it comes time to scale, you know, the structure is in place to do so. Um, so that's one path that I think is a, a good setup to be successful if done right. 
And then with Raw Juicery, I also really love their setup, which is the complete opposite, um, completely bootstrapped, completely self-funded, and not really interested too much in like crazy scaling. So at Raw Juicery, our founder, Ryan, he um, you know funded the business and he's been growing it for 10 years. And he's just consistently stayed in tune with, is this in line with like my dream? And it's okay if that dream evolves. It's okay if what he sees for the future changes, but he's consistently said, you know, I'm going to do what feels right for the brand. And he was in retail at one point and said, you know, this, this doesn't feel right. I, I committed to getting, it's, you know, a juice brand for those people that don't know, I committed to getting the best juices, the best ingredients to consumers. And a big part of that process is making sure the juice is never frozen. It's making sure it's cold pressed. Um, ingredients are expensive and retail margins, you know, they just didn't make sense for the product unless he was willing to downgrade the quality. And he wasn't. And he's in a very, I think, successful space 10 years later where he's does an incredible D2C business. And he said D2C is what makes sense for our product. Um, he didn't put the pressure of needing to be everywhere in retail stores. You know, it was never maybe at some points he thought i want to be in every retail store but he acknowledged like that when he went to execute maybe that that's not really in line with you know getting the best product at least for our product to consumers so he did d2c and he did it really well and continues to do it really well and that's his version of scaling right and now there's different um parts of that we can play with uh currently you know we're working on different forms of marketing to bump our D2C business. Sure. There's always like consistent scaling, but you know, his idea of scaling isn't let's be in every retail store. Whereas TBH and the venture side is of course, if you're getting VC backing, like we want your product. To you be have to, store, you have to be, um, but you know, at the end of the day, if you look at it and you have no investors, like his wins could be, you know, fairly similar, if not more and his takeaway from the business um, could be just as successful, if not more. It's just, it took less people to get there, less um, investors and less scaling, but it's still a very successful business. I think it's just what you deem, which path you want to go down, how collaborative you want to be, and what you envision as that end goal of success. Um, you can do very, very well for yourself without ever fundraising, I think. And um, it's been really awesome to see both paths. Um, they both definitely have their pros and cons. It's interesting because it is a very different path and it's it's a path that is it was less common over the past few years where brands had access to cheap capital and all of them a lot of the brands I saw took capital because it was a thing to do not because they necessarily needed it to grow uh, and it's there's something to be said about growing a brand over 10 years progressively slowly you know with a more reasonable Fifteen percent year-over-year growth versus two hundred percent, you know, which is which is the VC expectation. Oh. Um, and so, you know, having somebody that can stay true to their values and what they want the product to be, it's incredible. Um, it is also very challenging because you know you don't have the, I guess, you don't have the the war chest that a, a VC-backed company has to withstand. The ebbs and flows of the market, you know, the having to order a bunch of product and then having to service it in a, you know ninety days, hundred twenty days in advance of of actually selling or getting paid. Um, I guess one of the interesting things about perishables or juices is that the the cycle is very quick. So 
you go from production to sale, you know, quickly. And, uh, but, but it's, it's really incredible. Um, what do you think it's, I mean, what do I think are some of the things that have allowed him to, to do that? Is it, did he focus on building a really great team? Um, very clear, you know, marketing avenues because going direct to consumer, you know, from an inventory standpoint, it's, it's highly beneficial, but it's also expensive, right? You're acquiring these customers one, one on one versus going to a retail or going to a distributor and then sending, you know, 1500, 2500 units and then going into stores. So how, how has he managed to, or how have you guys managed to keep that CACT LTV stable going direct yeah. to consumer over the years? For sure. So um, I am like a lot newer to raw juicery, but through working with Ryan um, and talking about like how he's gotten to where he is, um, really, I think it's goes back to like staying true to what worked for him and being okay with this might take time, but we're going to do it right. One thing that I love and can compare to TBH especially is um, they do, they're fully vertically integrated right now. And it's one of my favorite things about raw juicery. If we want to create a new flavor, which we did, we have two launching this week. Um, I oh, believe I'm trying those for sure. Yeah. Heading, <laughs> heading down to my local LA store. You got to get them. Um, but yeah, the process started like three weeks ago, a month ago. Um, with TVH, it, if we wanted to do something new, it was like two years in the making. Um, right. And that goes back to the pressure, I think, that was put on. But like you said, you know, we're acquiring at TVH, we were acquiring mass numbers of customers at once. But then with that comes mass production. So the partners we needed needed to be able to produce at our volume. And then you go to a partner that can produce at your volume, but your customization of the product is not as great, right? So we were able to get really good rates. We could um, churn out a ton of product and meet um, MOQs of retailers. But if we said we want to develop a new flavor, um, that wasn't a quick process, right? Um, so we were able to reach this mass audience that we acquired through a celebrity founder and get them all product, which is super, super important. And I think works well for TBH. Um, raw juicery started, you know, Ryan was at farmer's markets selling the juice. He was acquiring these consumers one-on-one and he has that. such strong, yeah, relationships with these consumers. Um, and in doing so, I think one, their LTV is pretty, you know, it's inherently going to be longer. Like they're, they feel a closer connection to the brand. Um, there's less of them, you know, but they're there for a longer ride. Um, so it's, you know, I think they're just two opposite strategies with one. It's like, let's get as many consumers as we can. And if we acquire a small percentage of those, that's still awesome. That's still a really high number, you know, um, or it's let's go for that individual aspect and do things meticulously and take our time and do it slow and do it right. But every consumer we're acquiring, like they'll be a consumer for life. Um, and I don't really think you can compare them. I think it goes back to also VC, like, you know, th that puts the pressure, like you said, on the growth numbers. You have to do it that way. If you're BC backed, you have to grow um, that quickly and you have to be producing enough. You have to be acquiring that many consumers and you are just okay with kind of that loss or that turnover um, being bootstrapped and it being your vision, your dream, and, you know, not having investors. Um, you can stay true to that. You can invest in those consumers. You have a lot more, you know, time to communicate with these consumers one-on-one. -on -one, and 
that translates. So I think at the end of the day, you could end up with the same amount of like loyal consumers. It's just how you got there, um, how quickly they turned over and how long they are, you know, there for you. But yeah, they're, <laughs> they're both uh, great approaches. I think it just depends um, honestly what the engine fueling your business is and what makes sense like for the infrastructure to uh, go with that. You mentioned something, which is the, the you know, direct and um, high quality relationship with, with the consumer, with the customer. And I mean, farmer's market is such an incredible way to build that. You know, you interact with these people that week after week come back to the same farmer's market. I mean, I'm, I'm an avid farmer's market visitor in LA and, you know, there's like three or four products that I keep going back to over and over again um, every week. And I just keep buying and, I wonder, like, if, you know, in a world where, like, we have so many different products, you know, for juices, for cookies, for, you know, wellness, for anything, there's, like, a million options. If, what are the keys if somebody wants to launch new products? So, kid out of high school that, you know, maybe has gone into college, um, they love to build their own company, to launch their own product. What should they be thinking about? Like what are the the, the, the verticals or the, the pillars of you know, principles that they should be thinking about for the world of today if they wanted to launch their own product? For sure. First and foremost, how are you getting money? <laughs> um, <laughs> how are you finding it? <laughs> I think either is fine, whether you want to raise at some point or you want to, you know, do it yourself or have friends and family chip in. Obviously, you know, you need capital of some sort to start a business. Um, so I think that's step one. And from my experience, I think that drives all the rest of your pillars, really. Like right then and there, you're making the decision. I want to start my own business. Like, do I want this to be my dream until it's not? You know, do I want to be in this and staying true to my values for as long as possible? Or do I want rapid growth and I need like a powerful engine of VC or whatever it might be behind me to make that happen? So I think that's like the first big decision you make when you say, I'm going to start a business and it pretty much dictates where you go from there. Um, and at least from my career, you know, that's what I've seen. Um, yeah. And then I think there's also, we're talking CPG, but there's also like the service industry. There's, am I doing a product or am I giving a service? Um, and they're just totally separate structures. I mean, even with myself, I, work for companies that produce products. I work for CPG companies, but you know, I freelanced, I do freelance right now. I consult. That is also my own business. And it's, what is my business going to look like? You know, am I going to be selling a product and that I'm passionate about? Um, or, you know, am I giving away my knowledge and those come with their own challenges? Um, Everything from how you price that to how you operate to how you communicate to hiring, um, building teams, all skills that you'll learn both paths. Um, but yeah, I think for CPG specifically, the first question any business owner really encounters is, you know, how am I going to start this with money and where's that money coming from? And then that really kind of sets you on your path. One of the questions I wanted to to bring up was around the transition of the the consumer between the you know the boomer millennial to gen Z. Um, how have you seen the the demand change between those those two? Let's just take millennials and gen Z. like what are they asking for today that maybe millennials were not 
Uh, what are they requesting from products? What are their sort of needs and desires that they maybe have shifted in the past, say, five to 10 years? And how are brands responding to those? Yeah. I mean, I think the assumption and I mean, there's data to back it, of course, is that Gen Z is willing to pay more for ethically sourced, more sustainable, better for you products. Um, I think in specifically like the food sector of CPG, that was a little tough to, um, I mean, it's easier said than done, right? Like we had a Gen Z founder at TBH, um, his audience was Gen Z and we are assessing these buying powers of Gen Z, right? Like they want a sustainable product check. Like we're doing that. We are making uh, no palm oil, better for you, better for the planet version of an already existing product. Um, but then you go and you sell it. Who, you know, who is the pantry buyer for a household? It's not the kid. It's not the Gen Zer. It's, you know, the parent, it's the millennial. Um, in our case at TBH, it's like the younger side millennial is probably the health conscious parent that's going to the grocery store and wanting to buy a new product. Um, so I think that was a very interesting uh, case study on we are assessing both of their needs, wants and desires in terms of like looking for a brand that they want to buy and bring into their home. But at the end of the day, you know, it was the millennial that was buying. So how do you balance the vision of the brand being a Gen Z founder and saying and giving the appearance and, you know, the backing to it that this is a sustainable product, but also appealing to the millennial parent who still likely wants a sustainable product, right? Like their kid, their Gen Z kid is coming to them. They're also a young millennial. They're aware, <laughs> they're, you know, still listening to everything we're listening to. They want a better products for themselves and their kids. Um, but how do you balance that with like, are they willing to pay more? Maybe not, you know, it's expensive to be a parent. It's expensive to be a parent and shop sustainably. Um, but how do you become that brand more so than just trying to convert them on that product? Um, and I think that's how you, you do both. You take the mindset of Gen Z and giving them a sustainable product and checking all their boxes for, you know, what we hear all Gen Zers want. Um, and how do you make it reasonable for a millennial to actually consume? Um, so an example I would say is when I transitioned out of my role at TBH at the time they were developing like single serve packets. So there you go. Like maybe not every millennial parent could purchase a full jar. It's a lot more expensive than Nutella um, because of the products, obviously, as most sustainable products are. Um, but how can we, you know, maybe they can afford just like one of the single serves ones that they take at checkout and they can bring this piece of like the same values that they likely also believe in, but we're making it approachable and doable for a parent that, you know, might, that might not financially be in their realm to buy a $10 jar versus a $2 jar. I've noticed, um, you know, I'm, I'm European and in Spain, there is a, a much lower price point to access high quality products because there's more local farming, local right. agriculture. Um, and by default, you have a lot of locally sourced products that are almost like farm to table. And so you have, so you've always had this access, right? Um, a lot of the times brands like Nutella that were more industrial and large scale were more expensive than your average, you know, uh, local brand. 
um, just for you know, a matter of like large scale distribution costs. Mm-hmm. And when I came to the States, it was sort of flipped. I realized I had to pay a massive premium to access high quality produce and high quality foods. And it, it was really, it was really intriguing to me that eating well was very expensive and eating badly was the most affordable, convenient and practical and cheap uh, way to eat. And I feel like that's, that gap has only become bigger. Uh, you know, you want, you want high quality foods, you go to Whole Foods, you go to Erwan here in Los Angeles. The other day I went to a farmer's market and I was quoted $7 for an avocado. And I'm like, what, in what world? I mean, yeah. like how, how can anyone afford to eat well nowadays? Um, you know, most people just can't. And so it's, you know, it's really interesting how that's going to play out in the future because you have brands like Costco that provide fairly high quality uh, goods, but because they, they don't want the margins, they don't care about the margins on the products. They make all their money in the subscription revenue. And so one of the, one of the interesting trends that I think might start coming up is uh, consolidation of brands. So if you're, if you're a brand conglomerate, you can bring together a ton of brands. You can afford to really cut your margins massively and you can bring in other models like subscriptions. Right. So now imagine uh, a Costco of like high-end foods where you pay a monthly subscription, you got access to high quality, you know, low-cost products, and then um, they don't care about margins. And some have tried, you know, you had like Thrive Market, even Erwan has launched a subscription, but still prohibitive costs. Right. Um, and so I was wondering, you know, the other the other thing I wanted to, to ask you about too is, you know, there's a ton of talk, especially in the beauty and, and wellness space around the impact of AI. Uh, and so I know this is a buzzword, you know, everybody's talking about it, but, um, you know, I wanted to get your thoughts from a creative standpoint. Have you seen the impact yet are you guys using any kind of tools? And do you have any forecasts for how this might change, how marketing and creative is done over the next few years? Yeah, I think it 100% will completely evolve. Um, it's an exciting time, I think, for consultants that understand the tools. Um, I've heard the term, like it's this golden age almost of where people who understand AI in the creative world are going to be able to like harness the assets and essentially just make a lot of money because you can kind of outsource what used to take us a while and use these tools or use agencies that really understand these tools um, to just get you so much work and so many clients. Um, But the biggest ones that I've seen right now, I think the first one that everyone started using was just like ChatGBT for copywriting. Um, SEO blogs, everyone just throwing those up for, you know, it used to take hours to write a really long blog, research, know what you want to talk about, just to add copy to your website, you know, bump in search terms and everything. And now you can just type in, use these search terms, create a, you know, interesting blog about X, Y, and Z and upload it to your website in under an hour. Um, and I think that's great. A lot of people are using copywriting. You know, it's definitely lost the art a bit, but I think that's just like this first stage. I think once AI gets better and it starts generating more um, unique responses or even we're better trained on how to prompt it to get 
more unique responses. Um, yeah, copywriting, I can almost ensure you anywhere you see that on websites and branding will probably be done by AI and less by people. Um, and then something I'm super excited about because if you've seen Raw Juicery's assets since the rebrand that happened last year, or been to our website, you know, we use primarily CGI. Um, we stay away from photography. We love the futuristic feel. Um, and in the past, that used to be extremely expensive um, to do. We would get an asset back maybe every other week and it looked incredible, but it was super expensive, maybe like the cost of a small photo shoot for one asset. Um, and now there's agencies and you know even programs that we can self-teach in like Adobe Firefly and you know there's so many others um, that will generate these for you and hundreds and hundreds of versions of them that you can go in and tweak. Um, I actually just had an intro call with an agency I'm super excited about called Not Content. Um, and they basically do just that. Their team is creative directors and then AI retouchers essentially. And you come to them and with an extremely low budget, they will give you hundreds and hundreds of assets. Um, they'll even do your branding, your PDP photos, um, and they just turn it out in less than a week timeline, which, you know, at the beginning when people went to use CGI was unheard of. And these costs yeah. are also unheard of. So I think too, seeing the trend, why like this makes me so excited is working at TBH, um, you know, we were a Nutella product and we had a celebrity founder. So we would do these huge budget photo shoots and it was a food product. So we had come and we had these um, food designers basically, and they would build these massive cakes and they would use TBH and all these applications and they would prep for 24 hours in advance. And you go and do this photo shoot and yeah, like you donate the food, you give it to people on set, but it's just, you look at it and you're like, this is so wasteful. It's so like, we're you know, a sustainable brand. And before there was like no industry way around it, unless you're willing to pay for CGI or rendered assets, but wait. And there, you know, there was just no in between. And now I think what's so exciting with um, where AI is going as far as CGI and content is like, you don't need that waste. Um, you, you know. You don't need those productions anymore. You don't need those large scale yeah, productions. It's so wasteful. People would travel. You would fly people in. I mean, when you think about just like all of the carbon emissions, all of the practical food waste, it makes no sense. Um, and I think people will look back and say that that was crazy that we ever did those things yeah. when we can. Why would we produce that way? To render an image that looks better than that um, yeah. and more pristine. So. Yeah, it's pretty crazy, but it's really exciting. I think from the perspective of a creative director, at least, um, I'm sure, you know, everyone is probably trying to find their footing to say, like, how am I going to evolve around this and make my job uh, not be able to be taken over by AI? Um, but I don't think that's the question. I think it's how how can I use these tools to make me better at my job and me be able to work for my clients or my brand or my company better. And that's what's happening, which is very exciting. Alana, this has been a, a great master masterclass in, uh, okay. in what's coming in the, in the future and what brands, what brands and customers want today. Thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you so this much. Is, it's been super educational. So, oh, thank you um, for having me. I hope that I'm excited to, to see more raw juicery. I and I got to tell you, like I didn't even notice the assets were CGI. I, I realized it's like futuristic 
there's this futuristic tone to them. Right. But um, I didn't even notice. So it, it's a testament to say that the technology is becoming so good. Right. We barely, we barely notice anymore. Exactly. Which is scary and incredible, but I think you have to err on the positive side in life, right? Exactly. Awesome. <laughs> well, thanks for taking the time. Thank you.